so many of my relationships with anything or anyone in life that I care about the most is a relationship of high highs and low lows. There's something deeply human about about a relationship with anything that can offer you the greatest joy in your life and also the the greatest sorrow or, or greatest pain. Running grounds me toward that more viscerally perhaps than anything else. It's a reason why I keep doing it. It more than anything serves as, as a sort of, I don't want to say metaphor for life because it is life, but as a way for me to understand life. So to deny it that is to deny it its, its ultimate complexity. And I have to acknowledge that like there are going to be days where running makes me feel more joyful than anything. And there are going to be reasons that have to do with running that are the reasons that make me feel maybe ashamed or, or maybe scared or, or maybe deeply sad. And that's hard, but it's real. That's Devin Kelly. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And my conversation this week is with Devin Kelly. Devin is a runner, writer, and a poet based in New York City. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Lit Hub, Catapult, Longreads, and in other publications. I first became aware of Devin at the end of last year when I read his essay, Running Dysmorphic, which explored his relationship with competitive running, exactness, and giving himself permission to be exactly who he was. It really resonated with me and my own experiences as a competitive runner who has dealt with body image issues. And then a couple months ago, my college coach, Karen Bowen, who you can listen to and learn more about in episode 115, she sent me an essay entitled, What I Want to Know of Kindness, which it turns out was also written by Devin Kelly, and it also really hit home for me. That essay isn't really about running, at least explicitly, but what it reinforced for me is the depth and strength of the relationships that can only develop when you share a lot of miles with someone over time. You know, the kind of bonds that just don't break. Anyway, I just knew that I needed to talk to this guy, and here we are today with a conversation about running, writing, exploration, masculinity, wrestling with shame, self-worth, hope, and a lot more. This one really impacted me on a deep level, and I think it will do the same for many of you, so let's get right into it with Devin Kelly. Devin Kelly, this is the first time that we've ever spoken, but through your writing, you're someone I feel like I've known for a long time, or at least could know, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here. So how I first came across you and your work was an essay that you wrote for Long Reads called Running Dysmorphic, and I want to get into more detail about that later in this conversation, but it hit home with me because you wrote very openly and candidly about body image issues that you have faced throughout your time as a runner. And after I read that piece, I, you know, it really impacted me. I shared it in my newsletter, but I didn't really <laughs> pursue um, your work much further than that until maybe a month or two ago. You had another piece for Long Reads, and it was called What I Want to Know of Kindness, which wasn't even an essay about running necessarily, but you shared quite a bit of your experience as a runner in that piece. So I'd love to just start with those two pieces and you writing very openly and candidly about your 
experience as a runner and what spurred those? Yeah, thank you for for reading so well and so generously. Um, it's a good question. I think um, you know the, the the first essay, running dysmorphic, what spurred it was more of a desire to sort of give language uh, and voice to to something I had been feeling for a long time, but hadn't really put into words and. And so it began mostly um, not as like something I, I intended to publish or, or, or um, anything like that. It really began as like uh, me trying to wrestle with um, wrestle with like all these sort of latent emotions I, I felt um, as a competitive runner, and, and I, I still feel now as a runner and and um, and, and 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 as a man too. Um, and 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 what it meant to sort of wrestle with shame and masculinity and 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 the image of my body, um, and you know I I write a lot of things. Uh, I don't write to know things. I write to try to understand them, and and so that's sort of how the essay came about um, as an attempt to sort of understand and, and give voice to that, and then it sort of coalesced and formed something larger. And and honestly, when that was published, I I wasn't expecting sort of the uh, like the degree to which it would be shared, um, <laughs> and was really, um, moved actually by, by, um, by the community of, of people who sort of like, there are people who came out of the woodwork, uh, people and strangers who like emailed me and, and I was, um, so touched by that. When did you first start exploring the topics of body image and masculinity in writing, and I don't necessarily mean in this particular piece or for something that you thought might get published someday, but maybe in a journal or just in you know random notebook that you keep of of yeah. thoughts where you were <laughs> taking a lot of these things that you were feeling and getting them down onto paper. Yeah, um, masculinity more so, like the body image thing. Like a lot of it has to do with shame, and and I didn't think that even in my own personal sort of writing, my journals, my notes I made to myself, I, I didn't think that it was worth sharing that for many years, um, like I, for many years, I, to put it bluntly, like hated the way I looked and particularly hated the way I looked in regard to, um, you know, the sport I was involved in so, so deeply. Um, Masculinity, though, I, you know, as, as a poet, especially, um, I realized that I was unpacking a lot about masculinity in my poems when I started writing more deeply about my father. And when I started writing more deeply about like what, what it meant um, to sort of, not what it means to be a man, but like the ways in which my father, who's like, a, you know, <laughs> He's, you know, there's some ways he's a stereotypical father in some ways that he's not. And sort of, um, and he raised my brother and I uh, by himself um, since I was 11. My, my mom left my family. And um, and so being raised by a dad with a brother and like a lot of my poetry un unpacks that relationship and and what it means like later in life to think back on those years and, and find love or tenderness or grace or softness where, where I didn't notice it as a kid. Um, and that's sort of been what a lot of my work has unpacked before, well, still tries to unpack and explore, um, is the ways in which like men show love when they often don't think they are. Um, and yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense. When did you start 
writing about this for yourself? Have you always been a writer or a journaler, or is this something that came later when you were looking back and had a little bit more awareness of what you experienced growing up? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I journaled for a long time. Actually, when my mom, when my mom left my family, um, you know, and, and there were some years where we didn't see her that much and, and now we do. And, and she's wonderful and, and one of my favorite people in the world. But, um, when I was growing up, actually, my mom would like send me journals and, and send me books to read. And, and so a lot of my like desire to put things to paper comes from her. And, um, and and I I did that throughout you know late middle school high school I was you know I had so I have I have a drawer full of full of uh, like my adolescent journals back home um, and I'm always surprised by how many there are um, but then um, it wasn't until after college really um, when I went to grad school and got my MFA um, in creative writing that I started really taking myself seriously as as a writer writer. Um, but for much of what I can remember, um, like writing has been the way I've tried to unpack and, and think about um, the things that I obsess over. What did you study as an undergrad? Um, I was a Hing- English and history double major. Um, and I, I didn't take a single creative writing class. In fact, when I got to college, I like almost abandoned the idea of journaling um, to begin with. And it wasn't until my senior year of college that I had... Um, I had a teacher, Professor Greenfield, and and she, um, like we were talking, and 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 sort of she was the one who like, who knew that there was something creative there, and like you know, like any good teacher, um, sort of finds it for finds the thing inside you that you had all along. <laughs> you said or described your dad as a stereotypical dad. I'd love to dig into that a little deeper. What do you mean by that? Sure. I mean, like he, um, we grew up not really talking about our feelings, um, at all. Um, and, uh, you know, we grew up particularly like 11, 12, 13, 14, when I was that age and my brother, my brother's a year and a half older than me. Like a lot of our sort of days and nights followed the same routine that like, you know, it, I would chalk up to stereotypical sort of like, boys being boys of like eating dinner in front of the television and, and watching sports center and watching NFL primetime on Sunday nights and like a lot of sports and food and, and not talking, um, about things. And, um, under the surface, like there were things that, um, you know, like, um, there were things growing up, um, you know, I'm, my mom's an addict and a recovering alcoholic and, and we spent a lot of times, uh, a lot of our time in like, uh, um, Alateine, my brother and I, which is like this, um, youth group for children of alcoholics. And, and so there are things we did outside of the home that were unlike any experience, like I knew of other people having, and, and, you know, like there were these for years, my brother and I would go to this church basement and like talk to a bunch of strangers about how we were feeling. Um, and I always think that like, it was actually those moments. Um, it was like the years of doing that, that really like made me realize sort of the importance of, of what it meant to like have an outlet to express what you're feeling, you know? Um, and I think about, I think about those years often as like 
we didn't have a great outlet at home and my, my father's a wonderful person and I love him to death and he's my favorite person in the world. But, um, you know, for years, like we, we, you know, we weren't talking as much as, you know, I would say right now we probably should have been. Um, but we still found that outlet somewhere else, um, in little ways, you know, when your mom left, how did you feel? Were you angry, sad, confused, some combination of those things? Oh yeah. All, all of those things. Um, it, it, it's such a malleable age and it's such an innocent age, like to be 11. Um, and there are things I understand a lot better now that I like as someone who's 29 now and as knows, um, some degree of what this big crazy thing we call life is like, you know, there are things I was angry about when I was 11 that I, I understand more clearly now about, you know, what it means to be, um, addicted to something, um, and, and things of that nature. Um, and so I approach that, that whole time in my life now with a lot more grace and a lot more attempts at kindness because I understand it better. Um, in hindsight, but like then when I was 11, I was moody and I, I started going to therapy at a young age and I was moody and, um, easily angered. And, um, I, I pretended I was better than I was when I would like go to school. And, um, it was also at that time that I got into running. <laughs> um, like I, I had a Walkman, uh, and I would like cradle it in my arms and run this same two mile loop, um, in my neighborhood, <laughs> trying not to skip the tape, um, or skip the CD. Did you have one like, of those big bright yellow ones? No, I didn't like with the built in headphones or whatever. No, yeah, I, had yeah. a, I had a gray one. It wasn't shock resistant. That's what I remember. It wasn't shock resistant. So it wasn't the best thing to run with, but I ran with it, like holding it like a football. Um, <laughs> um, I still can't believe I did that. Um, it's also wild to think of Walkman, uh, like the Walkman is a thing that existed in life and <laughs> it's so far removed now. It's a relic at this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean like it, I was angry and, 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 and definitely confused and I didn't really know um, the scope of what was going on. And I, um, and so, yeah, I, like those years is when I, I, t I turned inward a lot those years, like my, when I was 11, 12, 13. Um, and, um, yeah. Um, but I, I hesitate to say I learned something from that experience. I think we all learn things from things. And I think it can be a redundant thing to say, but like, what I can say is that it happened. And like, I have, I have, as I've gotten older, I have learned to view as a result of that, and as a result of a lot of different things, I've learned to view like this life with a lot more grace and a lot more sort of ten my hope is to view it with more tenderness and forgiveness um, because of things like that and that I experienced. Were you a pretty introverted kid? I was, and um, I don't know if I still am, <laughs> but um, yeah, I was. And I was like, I didn't, we didn't have a, my, I don't, I still don't have a driver's license. <laughs> um, and it's because like my, I, we were like super sheltered as kids. Um, my brother and I, um, not like big time shelter, but like we never went to parties, um, in high school. Um, the idea of like a high school party still confuses me. Um, but we never went to parties and, um, 
and we didn't like go out um into the world we my brother didn't get his driver's license i think until he was in college and by then i went to the we both went to the same college and i was in new york city and i've been in new york city ever since and having a car here is like having i imagine sure. like a ch- yeah having like a child um but yeah i i was pretty introverted and um yeah, a lot of things scared me. I was scared by alcohol for a long time. I didn't drink. I didn't drink until I was a junior in college. Um, and it's because I was terrified of alcohol. Um, I was terrified of, of like what it did to my family. Um, and so I, um, for a long time, yeah, I, I guess I would describe myself as introverted, but I would mostly describe myself as scared. Um, I was scared. I like associated a lot of things with terrible consequences um, and um, took a long time to sort of unpack that. (laughs) Did you have any female influences in your life after your mom left? Um, Yes and no. I mean, I I had a, I had a girlfriend in high school um, and and to the extent that that was a female influence, like, sure, I, I, I would acknowledge that. Um, but if the question is more about, like, did I have anyone who was motherly to me? Mm-hmm. Um, not really, per se. I, my, actually, my high school cross-country coach for a, couple, for a year or two was uh, Coach Sanders, Heather. And, and she was a, was a female coach. And I went to an all-boys high school and. Um, she was a wonderful coach and was still like, she, she stopped being the coach and started being, she was like my history teacher, I think my, my senior year of high school. And I've always been drawn. I was actually just joking to someone that like, I, even as an adult, like I'm more sort of, I would rather have a, a female boss than a male boss. And like, that's, that can, that's maybe like a little, I don't know, um, black and white to say. Um, but like, I, personally respond better to like um to motherly figures um and like that's what that sort of second essay you alluded to is about um you know it's about the the loss of one of my best friend's moms nancy and 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 one of the reason that reasons that that was so powerful to me was because nancy you know for a long time um at least while i was in college and beyond like she i called her my second mom <laughs> um and um and she was such a powerful force in my life um and i felt so drawn to her um every time i saw her um yeah i want to come back to that piece and dig deeper into it in a little while but you mentioned and i know from your running dysmorphic piece that you come from a family of runners you mentioned growing up it came into your life pretty early and i'd love to understand exactly when it did and how it came into your life as a kid. Yeah. I mean, it was day one. Um, there's, there's a mythology of running in my family. Um, my dad, um, my dad was a runner and like, you know, I found his, he, his whole, it's, it's all on my dad's side of the family. And, and my dad was a runner and he, he grew up in Rochester, New York and, um, and he was like, he was, he was good. Like he, I found a, I found like a medal of his, uh, when my grandma was still alive at her house and, and it was for like a 
three-mile race, some AAU three-mile race in like the 60s. And he ran it in like 15 minutes. And, <laughs> um, and but, but really, the, the, when we would go um, be with my dad's family in Rochester, like there is a big, there was sort of a mythology of running. And, and a lot of it stems from um, not just my dad who ran, who ran through high school and, and like ran sort of in college. Um, but his brother, Michael, um, who I think I mentioned in the piece, like he, he ran, he split four minutes in the mile on, on a, on a relay leg at the university of Missouri. And, and he ran in the Olympic trials and, um, he, um, he still like, I remember some point of pride was he still had like the high school he still had like the local Rochester high school track record, um, on a cinder track for two miles and like, like for, for decades, um, um, growing up, my brother, um, showed a penchant for running early on and, um, you know, like that sort of gym class mile kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and he like, he was super fast in middle school and, and, and sort of the, the, the existence of my brother as, as someone who like could, um, you know, almost like follow in Michael's footsteps, um, was like a very real thing. And, 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 um, and so like a lot of my childhood was like my brother, my brother was like, he ran at Fordham, um, and, and he still runs competitively for a semi-professional track club and in Washington, DC. And, I call it semi-professional. I mean, it is, it's like a, it's like a track club sponsored by a local shoe store and, and he runs in road races all the time and, um, super fast and, and he's, he's wonderful. And, um, but like sort of growing up like that, like the talk was always like the talk always sort of turned back to running. Um, and so from a young age, like it felt like my brother and I were part of this sort of history, family history, um, of running. And it, it felt like in our blood, um, to be runners and to continue to be runners. And my dad used to take us to the track, um, when we were little, little, um, and he would, even in his older age, uh, like would, he would run in like a full on nylon sweatsuit around, <laughs> around the high school track. And, um, <laughs> he would do this thing called straights and curves where he would just sprint the straights yeah. and jog, jog the curves. Um, and he would just, he would do 12 laps, straights and curves. And, um, my brother and I would just watch him or like do our homework in the middle. And, um, without fail every, every time he did that. Um, and this is when we were like eight or nine, maybe 10, um, without fail when my dad was done, he would, um, he would line my brother and I up on the track and my brother and I would race each other one lap. And at the time I grew up really, really chubby. My nickname in fourth grade was marshmallow, which I laugh at now. Um, but, um, I was a bit of a, I was slower than my brother. And so my dad would give me like a 50 meter head start and I would always beat my brother like just by a little bit until this one day when like he, he, he destroyed me even with a head start and I got so pissed. <laughs> Um, but like, yeah, that those trips to the track are cemented in sort of my childhood memory. And, and even now my dad's 70, he turned 76 this year and like, he got a double hip replacement and he still drives, he still drives to the track. Um, he still drives to the track. There's this, yeah, there's this like community track that's by Georgetown university, um, where the Georgetown team works out. Um, 
And my dad drives there and he just walks, he walks laps of that track. Um, and he does that like pretty much every day. Um, so the track has always sort of held a central point in our life, you know. Is it something that still connects the three of you today? Yeah, it is. I mean, like my dad, I mean, I, um, one of the reasons I, one of the reasons I love my dad is because he, he showed me more than ever what it means. Um, my, my friend, I have a friend, Dennis, who, who once said that like the most important thing in life is showing up. And I never forgot that he was talking about like a goodbye party, like, (laughs) like something far less serious. Well, maybe, but far less serious, like someone's goodbye party before they like left New York. But, but he, he told me that. And, and that, that has always applied to my dad is that like, when I, when I got to college and my brother and I would, would race at Van Cortland Park, um, which is four and a half hours from Washington, DC, where I grew up, my dad never missed a race. Um, Ever. I like, I, I truly, I truly do not know if I've ever run. Well, now I have, but like in high school and college, like, I don't know if I ever ran a race where my dad wasn't there. And in hindsight, and even then, like, I, I, when I left for college, my dad and I were close, but we weren't like close, close, close. I wouldn't have, I don't know if I would have called him my favorite person on earth, but he became that because like every, every single time he showed up and like, I was not, (laughs) I was not someone like worth, well, this is some shame, lingering shame, but like, I was not someone like worth, I was not an exciting runner. He was not showing up to watch me uh, (laughs) like win a race or even come close to winning a race, um, which I never did in college. Um, But he showed up for you. Yeah. And he showed up anyway. And, um, and like, he really, like my friends, like he had a, you know, everyone knew that like Mr. Kelly would be there. Um, that's what they all called my dad. And, and that like, even at like his growing old age, I mean, he was in his sixties in college. Like he was hustling around Van Cortland park with like a stopwatch, like trying to see me more. Like he was like, he showed up and then he worked really hard to see me as many times as he could. And, you know, it, it meant a lot to me then. It means even more now. Um, it means so much now uh, when I think about it. And 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 so many like he was there for my first marathon, and um, he hasn't missed. I mean, I I would bet I would bet um, there is not a single person. There's not a single person who can manage to see someone as many times as my dad has seen me at the Boston Marathon, which is like the least spectator friendly marathon course in the world because <laughs> um, it's just a straight line. But my dad has um, he has a system down. He's like I one time he managed to see me like six times during the Boston Marathon. Like he that's impressive. Yeah, he he, he parks his car somewhere, takes like the train to Framingham. Um gets back in the car, like takes an illegal exit, like runs through the woods. Like he is a crazy man. Um, and, and like, I love and it. He, yeah. And I have friends who have like done that with him, done that spectating with him. And like, uh, it's like, <laughs> um, like he wears people out. Um, and, and it's like, you know, um, he was there, he was doing the same thing in that Boston marathon. What was it? Was it, 2018 when it was pouring rain and like 30 degrees or something. 
mm-hmm. um, and everyone got hypothermia. Like he was out there in a garbage I ran that bag year. or something. Yeah, I was yeah. I was there too. I loved every second of it. <laughs> no, I I did as well. It's one of my most memorable marathons, as I think it is for most people who ran that yeah. day. But my poor wife was chasing the race around and didn't make it to nearly as many spots as your dad. But I remember when I finally reunited with her afterwards, she was soaked and cold to the bone and she hadn't even run. That was just from trying to watch yeah. the event. Yeah, I know. I'll never forget my friend, my friend, Nick. Um, he ran it and he's probably going to listen to this. So I'm sorry, Nick, but he got, <laughs> he got like, he got pulled out of the race at like mile 17 for, you know, something approaching hypothermia and, and he was the last person. We were all staying in the same, um, like rented room and he was the last person back to our room because like after he got pulled off the court, he got, of course he got like put in a cart and like they drove him back through every other aid station backwards. And like, he, he didn't show up at the apartment we were staying at for like another five hours. <laughs> I felt so bad for him. I've heard a few of those stories yeah. from from that day and I'm glad I I'm glad I wasn't one of those people because that just sounds absolutely yeah. miserable. When did you first start to identify as a runner? It's a great question. I I mean, I identified as one in high school and uh, and and sort of in college, but like I a lot of my like sort of I I it part of it is like actually after college when I like more actively sort of pursue running on my own terms, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, you know, like to go from years and years and years of being coached. Um, and, and then to sort of be like, let loose from that. And like, um, you know, so many runners who run in college just stop running afterwards. And, um, and to be like, Oh, like it was sort of like when, when I had my last day of practice, it was like, am I still going to run after this? And it was like, I'll see. And then I woke up the next morning. I was like, I, sh- I need to go for a run. Um, and it, it really wasn't until sort of when all like the sort of structures that I had and institutions I had been a part of in running, when all those left and it's like, it's just you and yourself. And it's like, do I need this? And then the answer was yes. Like the answer was yes, I need this. Like I, I need to go out each day to run. And, um, it was, it was really then where it became, um, like the last, really like the last five, six, seven years where it became like such, I, where I considered it part of my identity, you know? But you never experienced that even when you were a college athlete. I did, but I was like college runner. I was like, I was more that I was a college athlete and not like a runner at heart. Um, I mean, I lived and breathed the sport, um, I did like I, you know, I surfed Let's Run and watched flow track videos and, um, <laughs> and like kept up with everything that was going on and, um, and had favorite runners and, and, and still do. Um, but you know, there was a lot of negative association like with myself, um, calling myself a runner. Like it was almost like imposter syndrome. And and part of that was because like, yeah, I was running in college and yes, I was a competitive college athlete, but like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't in it. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't a valued member of the team, um, from a purely, uh, <laughs> from like a purely, uh, like, uh, uh, placement standard. Like I never placed high in a race and, 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 
if I wasn't on the team, it's not like the team would have done any better or worse. And so I was a part of a team, which I loved being, but like, it, it really did take, take sort of, um, figuring it out on my own for me to, to come to term, like for me to realize how much running meant to me. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based brand led by a group of runners who are committed to making classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel. Their focus is real-world athletes, so the kind of runners who sneak a workout into their commute or plan vacations around races. Sound familiar? Does to me. Tracksmith designs all their products for the needs of serious amateurs, so they only use the best materials, from sweat-wicking, stink-free merino wool to a unique Italian nylon knit for their performance shorts. And all their garments feature thoughtful details that let you focus on your workout. As we head into summer, I love, love, love training in the Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tights. It's one of my favorite combinations, especially when I want to run fast. Both pieces are lightweight and super breathable, which helps me stay cool and allows me to move freely when the temperature starts rising. To welcome listeners to the podcast, Tracksmith is offering $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and enter the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out. That will save you $15 off your first Tracksmith purchase of $75 or more. My thanks to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Did you tie up any of your self-worth in your results or what number guy you were on the team or how you viewed your contributions to the group? All of it. <laughs> I tied up all of it in that. Um, and and that's, that's why I didn't... Um, you know, I, and I, I sort of talk about that in that first essay, in the running dysmorphic essay. Um, that I don't really, I don't know if I talk about it at length, but that that's a reason why, like, I didn't, I didn't also like um, really explicitly examine how I thought about myself and my body. Um, like, I I internalized so much in those college years, and it was because like. I was on the team and like I had friends on the team and I love so many of the people um, I was teammates with and, and, and some of them are my best friends right now and, and I would do anything for them. And so it's, it's less about, it really is less about other people and more about like what it, in a competitive environment on a team, like in a sport where so much of your self-worth is tied up to extrinsic things like numbers and times and places, you know, like I wasn't performing that well and I, I was a walk on to the team anyway. Um, and then like, then you look around and, you know, everyone like looks thinner than you or taller, um, you know, and, and like you do the math and like internally, like you're just at war with yourself because like you, you're trying to wrestle with the fact that like you are who you are and your body is the way it is, but like, it doesn't add up. Like, every time you step out on the track or every time you step out on the cross country course, like it's, I mean, it, it felt like failure after failure after failure. It's like four years of that. And like, there were little successes, you know, and like, I, you know, the PRs and, and, but I was always trying, I realized in hindsight how much I was always trying to prove that I just belonged, um, that I belonged on the starting line, um, that I belonged, 
um, belonged at the finish line, that I belonged like on the team. Um, and I know I did as a person, um, because I, because I love so many of the people I was a teammate with, but like, these are the things like you internalize things because you don't feel comfortable or allowed to say the things out loud, you know? Um, and, and so it was four years of sort of internalizing that, like, just like, telling myself whether it was true or not a narrative that I didn't belong. And like the reason why was because I was slow. And and the reason why was because I was fat. Like, um, yeah. Looking back, when did you start developing that awareness or telling yourself that narrative? Was it when you got to college? Was it prior to that? Do you have any real recollection of it? it? I mean, college heightened it. Um, but it was prior to that. I mean, like I, I grew up like my, my body has always been something I've thought about hypercritically, um, ever since, like I laugh when I talk about fourth grade kids calling me marshmallow, but like, Mm -hmm. I laugh now because it's the only thing I can do. Like when that was happening, I fucking hated it, you know? Um, and, um, but I, you know, like you learn to laugh it off and, and like, it's, it's a thing. It's, it's sort of, I, I do, and like, it has to do with masculinity too. Um, and, and, and there's a lot to unpack there, but like any sort of shame is seen as weakness in a sort of stereotypically masculine world um, or a hyper-masculine world. And so to express anything other than laughter um could be seen as like a as you know some sort of performative wrong and mm-hmm. so and so like i i spent you know in, instead of engaging with it instead of engaging with it in a fundamental way instead of examining how i felt about my body and what made me feel that way and, and the ways in which i was right to feel that and the ways in which people were wrong to tell me things like you just don't talk about it and you don't talk about it for a really long time and like I, I do mean it when I say like that writing that essay was the first time I talked about it. And like, I've been in years of therapy and haven't even talked about it. Um, and, um, and I remember writing the essay and being like, wow, like that is exactly how I feel. Like I feel ashamed and like, that's why, and I feel scared and that's why, and I feel hypercritical and that's why. And, um, you know, I wish I had yeah. examined those things earlier, but that's, you know, that's part of life. <laughs> well, I, I, I know um, when you say, you know, and I'm like, yes, I actually, I do know. And that's why this piece resonated with me because in a similar way, for me, it wasn't until after college, I started feeling the same way about myself and my past is different, but I became very aware of how I looked and what the people that I aspired to run like looked like. And I knew that that wasn't me. And I started developing this narrative in my head. And then I started chasing the wrong things. And as you wrote in your piece, like competitive running is a game of numbers to a very high extent, whether it's chasing, you know, a personal best where you place in a race or how much you weigh. And I had done that to myself in my early 20s, where I had this vision in my head that I had to be a certain weight and I needed to to look a certain way. And I was internalizing all of this and trying to work through it. 
and I realized that it wasn't healthy and it wasn't good, but I didn't talk to anyone about it. It was yeah. just all inside me. And I went down a road of disordered eating that spiraled pretty quickly. And I knew it at the time because it wasn't about performance anymore or trying to get to a certain place. It was, all right, how low can I push the numbers on the yeah. scale, which is a very dangerous thing to do. And it wasn't until I wrote about it for a, a very little trafficked blog at the time that I felt like I could finally shed some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I mean like that, and that's so real like that. It, it's that, it's that exactitude that like really, and like, I think your, your point about, um, your point about like scrolling, like I, I do it now and I have to catch myself and I, I actually try to, I like try not to, like I'm on Instagram and I try not to follow a lot of runners because like, mm-hmm. like I scroll through my feed and it's not, it's no one's fault, but it, you, you see, it's triggering. You know, yeah, you see it and you see like, um, yeah, you see, you see like the veins popping out of someone's calves and you're like, I want that. Uh, or like why? And then you look at your own legs and, and, um, and so it, it it's, it's, it is, it's such a triggering thing. And, and, and I think, and, you know, I, I'm happy you shared that. And I, 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 I know that so many people feel the same way. And, and I, when, when you share that too, I think too about like all, I think it's more of an, it's an open issue. And this is such a complicated thing to, to talk about, but it, it's, it's more of an open issue I know with, with women in the sport. And, and that's, mm-hmm. and um, like Mary Kane's piece um, that came out, you know, uh, in the fall about, about Alberto Salazar and, and, and like, and, and that's, that's, you know, was so well told and sadly part of a, a narrative, particularly of male coaches, like, telling, telling girls and young girls and women, um, that they need to be thinner and thinner and thinner, thinner. And as you said, like often through disordered eating and and it, it becomes not just, it becomes at a certain point, it becomes, it's always unhealthy. And then it becomes like deeply unhealthy and, and scarily unhealthy. And, um, you know, one of the complicated things about life and, and the thing that has, has to do with running, but also has to do with life is like, people suffer so much violence and, uh, at the hands of men and, and, and men are responsible for a great deal of violence, whether that's a coach telling a young athlete to lose a bunch of weight, like that's a kind of violence I would argue. And men too suffer from, from similar violences that they enact upon themselves. And like, it is a sadness Mm -hmm. that has to do with it's a, it's a deeply masculine sadness that like the same one of the same reasons that like it it is it is just a vicious cycle um in which like men are enacting violence and suffering from violence and not giving voice to it and and so like i'm i'm happy you shared that and i think you know like the more men who come forward and and share their feelings about self-worth and and their feelings about about negative self-image just in in regards to this, like it breaks down a lot of entryways and allows people to, to walk more openly and, and, and confront their shame because shame is like a shame. I have learned <laughs> it's a really terrifying thing and, and, um, and people suffer in silence a lot and that's tough. It's really sad. Do you still carry shame? 
Oh yeah, I do. I do. And like, I wrestle with it. I'm wrestling with it now. Like I, <laughs> um, like I, uh, I'm like, a, I don't know if it's a light, like a lighter note, but I, I've been in this quarantine for 90 days and, and, um, not to say I don't go outside, but I, I, at the start of it, I got, um, some nasty it band thing that, you know, I'm sure you can relate to. And, mm-hmm. um, I didn't run for about two months and cause I couldn't go actually see, I knew I needed some sort of like active release therapy and I couldn't see a PT, um, cause there's pretty strict lockdown measures in New York. And so I was sort of just like not active at all for like 40, 50, 60 days. And like, I know that I've gained a lot of weight and I'm just starting to run again. And, um, and it's hard. It's like, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard one to run again after taking (laughs) a lot of time off. Um, but it's hard to look at myself. Like it really is. And, and like, that's, what's difficult is like, you can, like, I can sit down and write an essay like that but it doesn't mean it goes away. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and it's hard. Like people say you should love yourself. And a lot of sort of self-help is like, in my opinion, really cliche, like love yourself. And like, it's like, it's really hard to love yourself. I think people should like confront that. I think we should talk more, you know, I think the nature of our dialogue about how we talk about our bodies and talk about ourselves should be more complex than simply, you know, love yourself or love your body because there are so many factors um, and so many different trigger points um, that meet at those issues. And um, it can be really hard. Um, It can be really hard to love yourself even for a second, you know? Um, So I think that's, I think that's spot on and it's pretty consistent with my own experience and knock on wood. I haven't had a serious injury in a while now that's cost me time away from running and my relationship with it has evolved over time. But while I'm very far removed from the throes of disordered eating and the worst periods of my body image issues, it's still there. It does. Yeah. I don't like, I've just sort of had to accept now, not, not just now at 38 years old, that's how old I am. But in recent years that, to some degree, it might always be there, and yeah. that's okay. And I've learned to live with that. But I also know that through talking about it, which I think is so so important, because I didn't talk about it for the longest time. It wasn't until I wrote that piece that I really allowed that dialogue to start. That I now have better tools to work through those really tough moments where I don't love myself, or I don't love how I look, or I feel ashamed for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and like, that's, that's the sad, complicated, tricky thing about it is it, it doesn't go away and the world doesn't stop for you. And like, so, you know, the triggering pictures will still be on Instagram and they'll find a way to sneakily get you, even if you block accounts and, (laughs) um, you know, and I, I, it's like, I try not to look at, you know, I, I try not to look at race photos of me because I know that if I do, I'll find something to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like, that's, it's like, that's, that's the, you know, like that's the, the caveat, like that's the, that's the compromise I make. It's like, yeah, I'm going to run the race, but I'm not going to look at the pictures after. And, and, and like, that's, and that's the compromise you make 
with with running that I make with running. It's like I understand that my it's actually like running is part of the problem as much and and <laughs> and as much as I love running and as much as I identify with it, like running is running is my love for running and and my desire to do it and and in many ways my need to go out each day and go for a run. Like it's it it is the thing that makes me feel most fulfilled that I do every day. And it is also like the thing that I still judge myself by. And, um, and that's really like, there's no, I don't think there's an answer for that other than just simply accepting it and understanding it and attempting to sort of, as you say, like, just know that you're going to have to live with it. And, um, and to like always sort of have an, have an ear toward it. Um, to be listening to like the narrative you tell yourself and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's real. Like it doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a double-edged sword in that yeah. regard. Cause I feel like I've got a very similar relationship with running myself and something I've been doing now for the past 22, 23 years where it fills me up like nothing else. It's brought a lot of, great things into my life but it's also caused me some of the worst pain and anguish like literal physical pain but also emotional and, and mental pain that I've ever felt um and yeah I feel like there are probably a lot of people listening to this whether they've run competitively or not whether they're male or female maybe it's something else that isn't running altogether that exists in their life that has a similar effect on them yeah and when you describe it like that, you know, it, so many, you know, so many, like, so many, I, I, I can only speak for myself, so many of my relationships with anything or anyone in life that I care about the most is a relationship of, of, of high highs and low lows, you know? Um, and, and so there's something deeply human about it. And there's something deeply human about, about a relationship with anything that can offer you the greatest joy in your life and also the, the greatest sorrow or, or greatest pain. Um, and that's why I keep running grounds me toward that more viscerally perhaps than anything else. Um, and, and, and that's why I, it's a reason why I keep doing it. It, it, it more than anything serves as, as a sort of, you know, I don't want to say metaphor for life because it is life, but as a way for me to understand life. Um, and, and yeah. And so, so to deny it, that is to deny it. It's, it's ultimate complexity. And, and I, I just simply, you know, I have to acknowledge that like there are going to be days where running makes me feel more joyful than anything. And there are going to be reasons. There are going to be reasons that have to do with running that are the reasons that make me feel maybe ashamed or, or maybe scared or, or maybe deeply sad. Um, and that's hard, but it's real. I think that's very well said. I appreciate you sharing that. Let's parallel this with what you do professionally, which is writing. Do you see similarities between the two? Yeah, I do. I do a lot. Um, and you know, I, I think I I write I don't like as I, I mentioned I think before like I don't write to know things I, I write to really try to understand them and I write 
I write and I still write because I'm obsessed with the things that I write about because otherwise I'd stop. <laughs> and if I got an answer, then I'd stop. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, like, guess I, you know, I could write about my childhood, my whole life. I could write about my father, my whole life. I could write, um, about a, a, a few things my whole life. And, and I probably will, I hope. Um, and running is similar in that regard. Um, it's not similar because like the act of running is like the act of writing. I think they're, they're different kinds of things. And I have actually come to view writing less as I, as I get older and, and work more and, and has, as I'm a teacher and, and I'm more perpetually tired. Um, I don't view writing as much as I used to as like some sort of discipline, the same way I view running, like um, in some ways, but, but what running does, it's more about what it feels like to me. And, and, I run in the mornings and it's hard for me to do anything before I run because running is like the, it's like my awakening into the world. And like, I go for a run and I feel more at once in my body and in the world and of the world. Like it's, it's vaguely spiritual, my relationship to running. Like it feels meditative and like a, a form of prayer almost. And I'm, I used to be religious and I'm not now, but um, and writing feels the same way. Like, um, there's just like a deep sense of like mystery about it. And there's, there's a deep sense to me of mystery when it comes to running, um, you know, and particularly racing and particularly marathoning, like, um, when you run a marathon and it goes right for the first time, which I hope you've experienced <laughs> and, there's a sense in which like, and, and maybe uh, this is how I feel it, but like, like uh, the 2015 Boston marathon was, was um, like maybe quote my best race. Um, and there is a sense in which like it felt, it felt less about running and more about like all these other things. Like it felt like it was about patience and it felt like it was about, presence and and being in a moment and it felt like other things like not getting too ahead of yourself and and running was just like this thing that i was doing while it was happening um and then and then it got hard and then it definitely became about running but um and writing is similar like it there's that sense where you just like don't know um like if when you run a mile on a track and i apologize if i'm rambling but like when you run a mile on a track, like after the first lap, you know exactly if you went out too fast or too slow um, because your brain can sort of picture it and your brain can, can grapple. Your brain can grapple with what's ahead. It's like you've got, you have three laps ahead, buddy, and like you really fucked that first one up um, and your brain's telling you that. But in a marathon, like your brain can conceive of the next few miles, but like it doesn't really know at mile four of a marathon, if you're going out too fast, because you don't know yet, you won't know until it's too late. And there's this overwhelming sense of mystery that exists at the end of a long endurance race that exists while you're running it. And I feel that way about writing where like, if you know what's going to happen, why write it? Um, it's the fact that you don't know. Um, Albert Einstein 
my favorite writing quote has is about is by Einstein. It's attributed to him. It could be one of those quotes that he never he never <laughs> said. But he says um, George Saunders, the writer, attributes it to him in, in some talk he gave, um, and he he says that Einstein said, um, "No worthy or true problem is ever solved on the plane of its original conception," as in like essentially like how you conceive of the ending when you're beginning is probably not what the ending is going to be. Right. And if you try and force that ending onto your beginning, you're probably going to fail. Um, it's going to be different. And like, I love, I love that about running, particularly running long distances. Um, and I love that about, I love that about writing is that like, um, it, it's become my way, as I think running is a way for people, as I think other outlets are a way for people, it's become my way of sort of exploring everything yeah. I don't know. Exactly. That's exactly what was running through my head as you were describing that. Both are just an exploration of yeah. something that doesn't actually, when it comes down to it, have anything to do with the activity yeah. itself. <laughs> Which is pretty wild when you think about it. And, I, and this is why I said it at the very top when I welcomed you to the show. You're someone who I've, I've never talked to before today, but I feel like I've known you for quite some time because <laughs> the way that you talk about this and the way that you write about it really resonates with my own experiences. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. I'd love to go back to the running dysmorphic piece specifically. You mentioned how when you wrote all of this stuff down, it was really the first time that you let it out. You shed some of this shame. I'd love to hear from you what the response to it was like, because I know I shared it in my newsletter, The Morning Shakeout, so it definitely reached some people through that. But I remember seeing it shared in various other places online around the time that it was published. And that really, like, you know, struck me and I was like, huh, like this, this is a piece that speaks a lot to my own experience as a, as a runner, as a writer, as a man who has dealt with a lot of similar issues as it relates to body image. But I'd love to get your perspective on how it was received and what you heard from people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, um, I get goosebumps thinking about that day, if I'm being honest. And it's, you know, I, I, I have a, um, I've worked with a real, I work, still work with a really great editor, um, Krista Stevens over at Long Reads. And, and I sent that piece to her. Um, and, and, and she agreed to publish it. And, 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 um, and, you know, I've been a writer for, for a few years and, and I hope this doesn't sound too sort of crass to say, but like, you know, I've, I've had a number of things published in, in like various kinds of outlets, whether they, you know, have really large followings or not. And so like, I, it's not that I'm not grateful. I'm always grateful when things are published, but like you learn as a writer, just like you learn very quickly how to deal with rejection. Cause you know, you, you send things out all the time and they're rejected. Mm -hmm. Um, and you also learn how to deal with like, when you really love something that you wrote and you share it with the world and it doesn't get that sort of, you, there, there are times when you're like, I wish more people read this, you know? And, and so like you learn those feelings early on and they sort of curb your enthusiasm. <laughs> 
about not about publishing, but like your expectations. And so when it when it came out, um, I knew what it meant to me, and and I knew that the essay um, meant more to me, I think, than almost anything, if not anything, I had ever published. And and so I was scared. I was scared because I didn't know how it would be received. I was scared that it might be neglected and, or that people say you, you're not allowed to write about this. Like you, you didn't experience it enough. Um, and, and so I, I can, I remember that day very vividly. I, I, I teach at a high school and I, uh, I had my, I had the, the piece came up at like eight in the morning. And, and so I, um, I, I linked it on my Twitter and, uh, right before my first class and I, I, press send and then I closed my laptop and I, I taught for like almost the whole day and um and teaching can be like kind of hectic and and so I remember checking my email like it, a couple hours after that and there was like a bunch of emails from people I had never met before and um I got emails from people uh like there's one guy I, I don't remember his name but he I got like he was like I'm an Olympic trials marathoner and like I am at the highest level of competition and like everything that you said resonates with me and like I was so blown away and uh, my brother was so proud of me um, and he was sharing it and it just like and then you know and and people were reaching out from, I got texts from people and um, some editors from some publishing places email me and it was just like so crazy the end of the day like uh <laughs> like I was so grateful was the word and I I didn't know what to do it's like it's like you walk into a room and then someone hands you a giant bowl of kindness and it's like all chocolate covered almonds and M&Ms and you're like what do I do with this <laughs> it's so it's so nice and um I remember taking the train home, the subway home and just being floored. Um, and so it was, I felt a deep overwhelming sense of kinship and gratitude with so many people. Um, and I felt, I felt that I was finally given permission to feel the way I felt. And I, I think about that a lot, the idea of giving permission. It's something that comes up whenever I teach creative writing is that like the most important thing I tell writers to do is to give yourself permission. And it's, it's easy advice to give. It's hard advice to do. Like I still have to give myself permission not to feel ashamed. Right. Um, yeah. Like give yourself permission to explore the thing you, you said you didn't want to explore to write about the thing that you're scared about to write. Um, and it felt like someone had, had walked into a room and I was sitting there and they gave me permission to feel this thing that I didn't know I had felt for a really long time. And so that day was really special to me. Hey, we've got one more sponsor to thank for this episode. It's my friends at Whoop. I'm super excited about what this company is doing for athletes. Whoop is a fitness wearable. It's just a band that you wear around your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Here's what's great about Whoop from my experience. Every day when you wake up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day and your training. If you get a green recovery, that's a sign that you have a more intensive workout, but if it's red, that's a signal that you might want to take a rest day or have an active recovery day. 
The Whoop app even has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals based on the level of intensity your body is signaling that it can handle. If you're not sure what type of training your body is ready for, this is an awesome feature to keep you from overdoing it. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so that you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set for yourself. For everyone listening to this, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario. That's my name when you check out. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, at checkout and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. My thanks to Whoop for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. What was the feedback like from the people that you're closest to, friends, family, former teammates? A lot of love, a lot of love. And like, um, you know, like the guys I'm closest to particularly, uh, <laughs> we're a silly bunch, um, the lads, as we say, um, they all reached out to me like individually um, and said that they had read it. And, and I, I had sent it to them. And I sent it, I think, if I remember correctly, with like a bit of a disclaimer that like, you know, like not something along the lines, not as serious as like, it wasn't, it's not your fault. <laughs> but, um, I think about this all the time. They were so the same thing. So, so full of love and, and, and so generous. And, and I, and like a predominant question I have as a person that I ask myself all the time. Um, the question I ask myself is like, what is it about you that you always expect that people are going to be unkind to you or that people are not going to be able to handle your vulnerability. Um, and it's a question I think uh, all of us probably ask ourselves at some point. Um, and I'm wildly grateful that in, in a moment of like extreme vulnerability, um, like publishing that essay that the people closest to me, um, the people closest to me showed me more love than, you know, I want to say than I deserve, but that's the shame talking. <laughs> but yeah, wildly grateful. Well, and for people reading it, you're also giving them permission to ask themselves these difficult questions and to explore some of these layers of shame and guilt and sadness that might exist. And I know it did that for me. And I'd already been through this myself um, as someone who had written about it and, and it experienced this like earlier in my competitive running career. And I think that's just such a powerful thing. Yeah. No, thank you. I appreciate that. I was, you know, this is like a aside, but I, I, I was thinking the other day about how, like about hope and, and, a lot of a lot of the things I write usually include a lot of questions and, and I, I I do think that hope and the idea of hope and like hoping for something better, like hope to me is almost always almost always takes the form of a question. Um hope it, it, it usually comes across as a statement, you know, like I'm hopeful for this or I hope that this. But it begins, I think, as a question because you have to ask yourself the questions. It's like, you know, um hope is like it's, it's the, it's you saying like, what can I make of this? Um, what do I do now? Um, what is possible? And, and so like, 
um, again, like writing for me in the same way as running is it's, it's a question I ask myself every day. You mentioned how in the response to the running dysmorphic piece, you were blown away by the love and kindness that came your way. I'm curious if that served as a catalyst for the next piece that you wrote for long reads called what I want to know of kindness. Yeah. I mean, it, it did. Um, it did. And I, I, I'm a generally, I, I hope I'm a kind person. <laughs> I want to be kind. And, um, I, I care so deeply about, um, about my friends and, and, um, and in some ways it did, I mean, in some ways writing, in some ways it did, in some ways it didn't, but, um, you know, like my, my friend Julian, who I ran with in college and is one of my closest friends, uh, his mom, Nancy passed away, um, just over a year ago now. And, and like, I, Yes. I mean, I knew that at some point I was going to have to write about it to process it because that's the only way I can process something. And, and I started writing about it. Yeah. Like immediately after, almost immediately after the running dysmorphic essay was published and, and in large part because, yeah, I was sort of riding on like this sort of emotional high of, of, of realizing again, as I think we all do, um, like the love and kindness of my friends and, but I also, it was, it was prompted mostly by, um, by a visit that like, uh, my friends and I took to see, to see Julian's dad and, and to hang out with Julian and, and to be around, um, these people who had meant so much to me and still do, um, in the aftermath of a death, um, and many months removed from it, we went, you know, I think it was January, um, this past January or this past December. Um, and we went and like to be reminded of that again and what it meant to be around my friends, um, and what it meant to, to again, show up for one another. Um, and I started writing notes almost immediately after that, that visit. And like those notes sort of grew into something much larger. Um, but kindness and gratitude, yes, like have become, the words I think I say the most now, and I'm grateful to. <laughs> it could be worse words to be saying yeah. on a regular basis than, than kindness and gratitude. What really strikes me about what you just said and what you wrote about in the piece and reminds me a lot of my own experience is just the depth and strengths of the relationships that you develop with these people that you've shared a lot of miles with. And yeah. one thing you said that, I'm just kind of connecting the dots with now is you showed up for your friend during that time when he had just lost his mom. You showed up for one another, which is exactly what you do when you're part of a team, especially yeah. cross country in college. You show up for one another every time that you take the start line. I'd love to dig into that a little bit with you and I don't want to say try and understand because I do understand it. I, I've been a part of it, but like what, you know, how those experiences kind of parallel themselves and how those seeds that were planted during your time at Fordham with your teammates continues to grow today. Yeah, no. And I, I appreciate being able to talk about this because like, I don't, when I, when I focus on like so much of the shame that I mentioned earlier was, was a, 
a conversation I was only having with myself that was very much influenced by myself. You know, um, I very rarely had instances where people or coaches, you know, commented on my body. Um, and, and so like a lot of my experience of being on a team was like you just said, um, like cathartic and, and unlike anything else. And I, I, I'll say spiritual again, like there are a few things like running like a long run with people you care about. Um, and there are a few things like suffering through some sort of lactic workout where your legs are on fire or you're, you get that weird pain right between your eyebrows on like the 18th rep. Like there, <laughs> there, there are a few things like that in general. And there are a few things like doing that with other people and like people do, um, you know, my closest friends, Nick, Ben, Julian, Matt, like, um, they, people pull you along with them. And the amount of times that I was pulled along by one of them, whether on just like a simple run or a workout or the amount of times that like, you know, we picked one of, one, one of, one of each other off the track, um, did some insanely sweaty hug, you know, like, there's something about being on a run, like a very simple run. And, and I, I've been trying to always find the right words for it, but there is something about being on a run, like a run with someone else or a group of other people that is a kind of kinship that I've yet to describe perfectly, um, but is the kind of kinship that creates close to unbreakable bonds. Um, and I think part of it is because there's a sense of vulnerability there. Um, and part of it is breath, like you're breathing together. And part of it is like, you know, collectively how you each feel, but you also don't know how the other feels. And like, and, and, and you're listening, you're listening to each other, um, whether you know it or you aren't. And so like, it's just like, there's, it's a bond I think that's unlike any other bond. And I particularly am attracted to the bond because it's so simple um, at face value. It's like literally you're going for a run with people. It's not like you're showing up at a football football field and like running complex plays mm -hmm. and <laughs> trying to hit your wide receiver um, like with the perfect pass. Like you're just literally wearing some shoes and some shorts and going for a run. And, and and I think it, it, it really speaks to the sort of sub sublime nature of the sport um, and, and toward the ways in which, like, it, there's some perfect measurement of, like, friendship and it has to do with vulnerability and it has to do with um, letting yourself fully be yourself. And, I, and it has to do with honesty and generosity and... I think on a run, those scales are perfectly tilted toward each other. Um, and, and, and that's why it's special. Do you struggle at all now not being in that collegiate environment? I know you're pretty far removed from it at this point. And you're obviously still close to your college teammates. But doing a lot of your running in New York City presumably by yourself, does it change the dynamic a little bit or make it more challenging in any way? It does. And like, I, you know, I've, I've 
toyed with the idea of joining a track club, like the Central Park Track Club. And I have friends who are in the Brooklyn Track Club, which is a, a big one in New York. And, um, but I also like, um, my relationship to sort of competitive running has changed. And I, I still like every year, you know, I've, I've run Boston a number of times and I still like to try and once a year, try and put it together for, to test myself at a marathon, you know, but, um, my, the friends I alluded to earlier, um, particularly my friends, Nick, ben, Nick, Ben and Matt, the past few years, we've gotten really into ultra running and, um, we do a lot of races together. Um, and we do some crazy ones. We've done some 24 hour ones. <laughs> and, um, and that's changed. I mean, I running by myself. Yeah. It's hard sometimes some mornings to get out, um, to get out of bed or, you know, to, if I want to do a workout, it's hard to like, uh, it's like, I got to run fast today. <laughs> um, but I'm really, I'm really grateful for, for like, particularly what ultra running, um, has sort of how it's shaped my approach to running daily. Um, it's taken less pressure off, you know, my desire to be like, um, to follow the perfect 16 week plan for a marathon, you know? Um, and in many ways, like I've, I've taken, I don't take running less. I, I, maybe I take myself less seriously as a runner and I take running just as seriously, but, um, doing ultras, especially has sort of opened up my capacity, or my ability to, to think of myself, to, to, to sort of reimagine what running is like, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's interesting to hear you describe that because when I moved to the Bay Area in 2014, I was introduced to ultra running almost right away. Within three months of moving here, I ran yeah. the first 50K. And I focused mostly on ultras from 2014 till end of 2017, I guess it would have been, and ran up to 50 mile race and then did some other longer adventures. But exactly as you described was kind of my experience as well. It helped take some of this self-induced pressure off that I'd been putting on myself for so many years. It allowed me to look at this thing that I had done for many years to that point through a completely different lens. And it completely changed my relationship and approach to the sport to where in the last few years, like I've still been competitive and I've actually run my marathon PR since then. But when I went into those 16 week cycles, like you just described, like my mindset was, was completely different. And I think it was being able to just look at this thing that I had done for a good percentage of my life through a different lens that, you know, flip my relationship with it and allowed me to, you know, actually have a, a more healthy connection to it than I, than I had in the past. And it allowed me to just, I don't know, just, just view myself in a different light as well. Yeah. I, I resonate with that so much. I think like, um, that ultra running world takes so much. It does. It takes like when you show up at your first ultra, it like, and you see, <laughs> you see like all the different kinds of people on the starting line and you realize that you're all like a little bit crazy. Um, and you start talking to people about that world. It, it does. It takes some pressure off like this, you know, consistent, the, the push that like I, when I was training for my first few marathons, I was like, I have to do this, this day and I have to do this, this day. And I didn't mm-hmm. give myself a lot of grace 
Um, and like when you don't give yourself a lot of grace, it means that you get easily frustrated or it means that there's just so many things that, that can backfire. Um, and, and there are more ways than something can, that something can go wrong than something can go right. And, um, I think ultra running is the complete opposite. Um, like you throw out any conception. I mean, I mean, I know that there are super competitive ultra runners who, you know, need to have like are, are very exact, but you know, um, when you're trying to run, like just complete your first hundred mile race, it's like, it's like, if you do it, you do it. And like, you got it right. And like, there's a lot of valleys along the way and a lot of super high hills and it sort of throws you into a world that's unlike any world um, that I had been a part of with competitive running. And it's a different type of exploration from what you were describing earlier yeah. in this conversation. And I think because it really is so personal, it's just you out there against the course and the elements and whatever variables get thrown your way. And you don't really have anyone else to rely on. It's very different from a cross-country race in that way or just doing something with your teammates. It's very much you. And I, I do think it just changes your perspective in that regard. Yeah, of course. It really does. And you, you move through so many different like iterations of yourself. Um, and, and that's part of the fun of it. And like <laughs> part of the, the scariness of it too, is, is you see all different kinds of yourself and you see the, you see the parts of yourself that, you know, make you scared and you see the parts of yourself that make you really proud. Um, and you see all of that within the confines of like what you call a race. <laughs> There's so much more that I want to get into with you, but we're running a little short on time here. So the last thing I want to talk about with you is something that we briefly discussed over email, and it's a new essay that you're working on. And it has to do with the search for meaning in running, but you don't always find it. And I'd love to just learn. That's the extent of my knowledge of it. I'd love to just learn more about this piece and where it originated, where you are with it and what you ultimately hope to get out of it. No, thank you. Um, it's actually a good segue from what we just talked about. Um, it's, I just sent it to my editor and, and, and I've, I'm, I'm hoping it, it sees the light of day, but it's, it's, it's called, it's, it's an essay about, about finishing and, 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 um, like what happens if, like what you, how you, how you attempted to make sense of something isn't the way it ends up making sense to you. And it, it actually was prompted by, um, uh, my friends and I do have for the last three years done this 24 hour race called farm days in Georgia. And it's like two laps around a farm. Um, and you just do it for 24 hours and not, obviously you don't have to do the whole thing. It's a very, it's a very family community driven atmosphere and, 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 fun for everyone involved and um but this past year um it was where two years ago i ran 100 miles for the first time there and 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 this past year like we all went into it we we have a lot of fun as friends and um drink some beer during the race and all kinds of things and and um uh this year like for some reason or the other or other like i found myself out there alone um like all my friends sort of dropped out and just ended up having fun after 60 or 70 miles. And for some reason I didn't. And, um, for some reason I kept going and like it, 
I didn't think about it until later how much it sort of ran against the conventional narrative that like if you do something that is objectively sounds objectively good um, or objectively um, hard or objectively courageous that you will feel good about yourself in the end. And like, I, I ran, I, I finished the race and like I, I ran 101 miles and I remember stopping and being like, and not being fulfilled. And it was like a kind of a scary feeling um, to have spent so much time pursuing this one thing and, and then stopping and being like, well, what did I get out of it? And and so the essay explores like what it what it feels like when you finish something and all the things that like you had sort of hung your hat on, like all the ways in which you had hung certain things on on the act of finishing, whether it was pride or whether it was joy or whether it was um, something superficial or not superficial. Like what happens when you finish something and like none of those things are there? Um, and I think that that's something like we wrestle with, I would argue more than we think. Um, and, and a lot of the essay is wrestling with that and wrestling with the fact that like for a long time, like uh, miles, I ran half that race with my friends and, and, and the second half I ran all by myself and particularly like in the dark and just trudging these two mile laps, uh, over and over again. And like the story I was, I was telling myself a story in my head and while that was happening and the story was like the story I would tell when I finished, you know, like I was running those laps and I was like, I can't wait to be done so I can be someone who's run a hundred miles again, you know? And, and I, I realized afterwards, like, why was I so obsessed doing a thing? Why, why was I so obsessed while I was doing a thing with telling the story of, of what happened after it, you know? Um, why was I so obsessed with like, the sort of objective like award of of accomplishing something rather than like being wholly in the moment um of it and like that's i i it's something i'm still wrestling with and you know like the last thing i'll say is that i think um um the essay was prompted or like the entry the entryway point of 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 the essay was prompted by there's a poet Suzanne Buffam and and she writes a lot of really short poems and she has this poem called On Duration um and it's a it's a it's a really short poem and it just goes to cross an ocean you must love the ocean before you love the far shore and like it's a beautiful way to sort of like think about endurance um or life um the idea that like all of us are sort of in these various oceans. And I think in, in large part, society tells us to love the shore that we're going to, you know, the beach on the other side. And, and not often are we sort of like given ways to love the ocean that we're in. And, you know, it ties back into what we were talking about with our bodies. And, and it's something that I'm really, you know, thinking about lately. I love it. I do think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. It ties in so well with a lot of what we've talked about over the last hour and a half or so. And even in terms of writing, you if you think about the finished piece, yeah. you're not 
you're not you know you're not on the page that that you're on um and exploring as we talked about and really trying to make sense of what's happening in that moment because you've already constructed the ending in your mind and and as i was listening to you describe that that's like one of the first things that i thought of or as you were describing in this piece like that moment in a race where you're like okay like in 12 hours from now, like I'm going to be a hundred mile finisher again. And you're just losing sight of where you, where you actually are, you know, at, at the time. And I can't wait to check it out. I hope it does see the light of day. If it doesn't, I may ask you to send it to me anyway, (laughs) so that I can, that I can take a peek at it because I've become a fan of your work here over the last several months, but I'd love to have you back on again. There's so much more that I'd love to talk about with you, but Devin Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the morning shakeup podcast. Thank you so much, Mario. I really appreciate it. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of dedicated runners who are committed to building superlative quality, classically stylish, and cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. I train regularly in their Twilight Tank and Reggie Half Tights, staples of their spring collection, which is now available online. And if you're looking for inspiration to stay motivated and get out the door these days, be sure to check out their journal on tracksmith.com and their Instagram feed at tracksmithrunning, where they've been sharing and creating content from around the running world. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out and save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. Whoop is a fitness wearable you wear on your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. It has built-in features like a strain coach and a sleep coach that help you target optimal exertion levels and tell you how much sleep you should be getting based on the intensity of your training and the signals that your body is giving you. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario, that's my name, when you check out. So go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter the code Mario, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at the Morning Shakeout. John Summerford, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>